Specialty Story, session number 223. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I get to have amazing conversations with physicians every week here on the Specialty Stories podcast. This week is no different. I get to talk to an abdominal transplant surgeon, Dr. David Foley, about his career, his 18 years out of fellowship, talking about what he loves, what he doesn't like, uh, and so, so much more. We start the conversation by how Dr. Foley first became interested in abdominal transplant surgery. Yeah, I think it all started back when I was a surgical resident at UMass. Um, I kind of wanted to just be a garden variety general surgeon, bread and butter general surgeon that works in the community. I had a friend of the family who was a general surgeon in Norwood, Massachusetts, where I grew up. And um, I just kind of wanted to be like him. And uh and then I get into my residency and I was talking to residents who did some time in the lab. I didn't even think about research before. And long story short, I decided to go into the lab with the new chair of surgery at UMass, um, Bill Myers, who was a really good mentor of mine. And Dr. Myers came from Duke and he had started the liver transplant program, the first liver transplant program in the South at Duke University. And he was our chair of surgery now. So I started working with him in the lab. and. He was doing some research looking at, you know, taking porcine livers and um, putting them extracorporeally, so perfusing these livers um, to patients in liver failure. And he did that at Duke where there was a patient that he kept alive, a patient with liver failure, kept alive with four perfusions with pig livers back in the early 90s. And um, he bridged that patient a liver transplant. And he was able to get a liver transplant for that patient, a human liver transplant, and the patient lived for about 12 years. So that's that impressed me a lot. I think that started my interest. So I started working in his lab, doing some porcine pig liver, you know, porcine liver uh, perfusions and how to stimulate the liver's function. And so that's pretty much how it all started. Um, that's on the research side. On the clinical side, I really loved doing vascular surgery. I was in my general surgical residency is I love suturing blood vessels and I love to operate on the abdomen. And a lot of vascular surgery is done on the peripheral vessels and the legs and limb salvage. And I'm like, well, I'm not as interested in that, but how could I really sew blood vessels in the belly? What would be the best practice for that? And transplant just kind of came to the top of the list. So I started pursuing, a, you know, research fellowships or clinical fellowships in transplant. And, and that's what I did. And that led me to Wisconsin. Um, it was really interesting because in was you had to apply for transplant surgery fellowships like three, four years in advance. And um, what happened was there was already a spot. There was no spot available at the University of Wisconsin in 2001 when I was graduating. So Dr. Myers said, "Why don't you just email the you know Dr. Solinger at the University of Wisconsin and ask him." If uh, if there was if you did it a year in the lab, could you potentially get another spot in 2002? So I did that, and 
Dr. Salinger called me right back and he said, you want to come out and interview for the job? And I was like, yeah. So I came out and interviewed and just great people out here. And uh, so I came out here as a transplant surgery fellow. I had never left Massachusetts before. Everything was done in Massachusetts. So I, I flew the coop and came out to Madison, Wisconsin. If you told me back in 2001 that I would end up spending 17 years of my life in Madison, Wisconsin, I thought you would have been crazy. Um, <laughs> but here I am. So that's kind of how it started, you know, my interest in transplant surgery. Yeah. One one uh, one weird accent location to another weird accent location. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that, that's, your, uh, that's your list of what, what a town needs for you to be there. Um, I, I want to start with, I, I usually don't dive into this until a little bit later, but vascular surgery uh, when when we think of that, when I think of it, I think of complex. I, I think of lots of tiny little vessels and lots of skill needed to sew those things together so a patient doesn't bleed out because uh, apparently blood and blood vessels are important. Um, where did you gain that confidence? Or is that something that anyone coming into a surgical residency can learn those skills and, and gain that confidence as they go? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there's an eye-hand coordination that you definitely need. Um, probably need to have it a little bit ahead of time before coming in, but you learn it when you're there and you just end up doing surgery. It's fine surgery. It's fine, meticulous movements of your wrist and your fingers and kind of turning your wrists in a way that allows you to place a needle through blood vessels. I think for me, you know, I I think the eye-hand coordination I built up as an athlete playing baseball and hockey might have helped me a little bit. You kind of develop that golf, that eye-hand coordination helps a little bit. And I've talked to other people who have been athletes before, and they've mentioned the same thing, that the eye-hand coordination has benefited them in their surgical career. doesn't mean that you can't be a great surgeon if you don't play sports. Um, so that was one thing that helped me. And I think if you're like to do stuff with your hands early on, probably it helps as well. Um, but you don't know until you practice it. So you need good mentors, good teachers, good surgical teachers in the operating room. Um, and I remember I even had that as a general surgeon, I mean, as a medical student at the Boston University um, in vascular surgeries and just scrubbing in on the operation as a medical student. And when you're able to kind of do some suturing with, you know, with the, with the vascular surgeon there and learning some skills, you kind of just feel like this is not as difficult as I thought it would be, but it gets more difficult clearly as you're doing more complex operations. Yeah, for sure. What do you think is the, the biggest trait that someone needs to have to be a successful transplant surgeon? I think, um, you know, transplant surgery encompasses both, you know, high stress, you have to have a good surgical skill set, right? So you have to be able to learn how to dissect out blood vessels. You have to learn how to suture blood vessels. But it's not just the suturing challenge. It's the decision-making that you make in the operating room. Uh, because ultimately what makes a surgeon a good surgeon, I think a lot of it is the decision-making, although you need the skills to execute the suturing. So that's absolutely critical as well. I think also that you need to have endurance. It's a really, um, it's an endurance field. The fellowship is very challenging. You work a lot of hours. You're in the operating room a lot. There are difficult cases, hard cases that you have to learn to navigate. And, you know, these operations are, you know, definitely in liver transplant. You're one step away of something not going well. 
for the patient. So it's a high stress yet high reward operation. Once you're able to get through the operation, the impact you have on patients are tr- is tremendous. So I think that's the technical aspect, endurance, an ability to understand that even if you make some mistakes, you just kind of move on. We all make mistakes, both in the operating room and outside the operating room. But on top of that, you have to have a good understanding of the medical side of transplant, the immunology, that which is what I love most not most, but I love both. I love being able to do the medical thinking with regard to the immunology of transplant and how do you prevent patients from rejecting their organs. So you have to have, you have to like the medical side and the surgical side. And I think if you like both sides of that, I think it's one of the traits of becoming a really good transplant surgeon. Are there any common myths or misconceptions that maybe general surgery residents have before coming into transplant surgery? Um, I think one of the things that they think about is, I mean, there's no question it's one of the hardest fellowships you'll do. It's probably right up there with cardiothoracic surgery, um, with, in car- with regards to the time and the commitment that it takes. But after that, you know, once you get into your faculty kind of assistant associate professor position, you're still in a busy transplant center and you work very hard, but it gets better. It's not like you're always in that world of just always working, you know? Um, there are opportunities to have balance and work-life balance, depending on where you work as a transplant surgeon. So I think the myth is you never have time to yourself. It is a very unpredictable career. So our career is we're on call at any time we get a call, we might be back in the operating room in the middle of the night. Um, I think that's not as much in other areas of surgery, in general surgery. Um, you know, there's trauma surgery, there's vascular surgery that get complicated, ruptured aneurysm patients that come in, in the middle of the night. Acute general surgery is another one. But I think ours is very unpredictable. We don't have a big elective surgery practice. Um, so one of the myths may be that you never have time to be able to have other aspects of your life. And I would say that's not necessarily the case once you get further on in your career. One of the the kind of, uh, at least for me, the kind of vision of transplant surgeon is the the pager going off, going to the airport, jumping in the private jet, flying somewhere in the country. Um, but I, I've talked to a couple transplant surgeons, and it seems like with COVID, the procurement side of things has changed a lot where the, the team that is uh, putting in an organ isn't the one now going out to get that organ. Have you seen that change as well in, in your program? Absolutely, yeah. We are um, like allowing other people to recover our organs for us. Now, it depends on the organ. So for kidneys, it's a relatively straightforward recovery. So most centers are fine with other center surgeons recovering the kidneys that you'll transplant at your center. The liver historically has always been, no, we need to go and get our own liver because there's, you know, do we really know, can we really trust the surgeon locally who's be recovering? And I think there has been a switch, you know, to not have to send our entire team to that hospital three states away. Why not let them locally recover it? We can look at pictures. We can talk to them in the operating room. We can FaceTime. We can, there's all this communication pathways we have now to kind of see exactly what that liver looks like. And most of the time, you can just let someone else recover the liver for you. So I think it has transitioned a lot in the midst of COVID. 
Yeah, that's great. Some some potential yeah. silver linings there. What does a, a a typical a typical day look like for you? A typical day, you know, I'm currently the chair of the division of transplant here, so I have administrative roles as well as clinical roles. But let's just take a week that I'm on call. Um, I'll arrive at work. I will come and I'll check the labs on the computer of all my patients who are on service in house. Then I'll go ahead and I'll round with the team. So we do patient rounds on the floor. We'll go see all our patients. We'll establish a plan for the day. In the middle of that, again, it's very inconsistent day to day, but I might be getting an organ offer call. So in the midst of rounds, I get a phone call. You know, there's a patient, there's a deceased donor liver that's available for your patient on the transplant list. You end up doing a lot of discussing on the phone and talking about that and then organizing the transplant that might occur later that night. Now, we don't do liver transplants every night, but if you kind of, what happens when you get an offer and then you end up doing a transplant in a 24-hour period, you'll end up rounding, seeing patients. You might go to clinic and see some patients, two or three patients in clinic, and then you would go ahead and kind of prepare for the patient to come in who's going to get that liver transplant that night or early the next morning. Now, there are some days that we don't get any organ offers because it kind of waxes and wanes whenever... You know, the, the thing about transplant surgery is that we can't do any transplant surgery without without our donors, right? So there's just unbelievable tragedy that happens at one end of the spectrum that we can benefit someone at the other end by giving them a new lease on life. So we do a lot of kind of communicating back and forth with the organ procurement organization, logistically trying to schedule when the operation is going to occur, the transportation. But we have people that can help us do that. We have we call them organ allocation specialists that work at our institution that help with the logistics and the coordinating so that as a transplant surgeon, I don't have to do all that. But when the patient comes in, I see the patient, make sure the patient's suitable for the transplant. We've already discussed this patient and put them on the transplant list, uh, but just to make sure they haven't developed any infections, stuff like that, and they're suitable for transplant. And then you go home and get some sleep. And then you wake up at three in the morning, you come back in and you get ready to do a you know, a five to 12 hour operation, depending on how it goes. Oh, yeah. So you, you, you need some good clogs and uh, <laughs> so, right. some Ted stockings to prevent those uh, varicose veins in the legs and DVTs. That's, right. That's good. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, obviously with organ donation, you need the donors there. Uh, I, I come from a family. My, my father was a type one diabetic and had a kidney transplant when I was very young, unfortunately uh, rejected. Um, And the more I've kind of explored this world and, and learned about different ways of doing things, we see other countries moving towards an opt out uh, organ donation system where the, the patient, the person goes to the DMV and instead of, the DMV saying, do you want to org- do you want to donate your organs? Uh, the default answer is you will donate your organs. Do you want to opt out? What What is the stance of, uh, if there is kind of a societal stance from a, a transplant surgery society standpoint? I mean, from a transplant surgery society standpoint, we, we know that there are thousands of patients that die in the transplant list every day and every year. We know there's a donor organ shortage. So a lot of our efforts is do everything we can to expand the donor pool. What can we do to try to utilize more organs to try to get more patients transplanted? So from a utilization standpoint, we would love to have an opt-out program such that 
the patients actually would have to opt out of organ donation. We have an opt-in, uh, as you as you are aware. Um, it's controversial, right? So a lot of patients out there in the community may not want that. And I think we live in the United States that they want to be in control of um, how they would like to go about with organ donation, which I am totally fine with, that the patients ultimately have their own decision to make their own decision on organ donation. But there's been one, you know, benefits of the transplant community has been with what we call first-person authorization. So historically, it would be the next of kin when you're passing away, your next of kin would decide if you could be an organ donor. But now patients and all of us can go to the donor registry in our state and we can actually go ahead and say if we would want to. So it's an opt-in, but it's legally binding opt-in. And a lot of states have laws now that this first-person authorization um, has substantially helped increase organ donation rates because the loved one knows, may not have talked to their loved one before they passed away, but then when we go to them and say, or the OPO goes to them and say, your loved one wanted to do this and signed up as an organ donor, it's much easier for that family to, I think, at times to move ahead with organ donation. So there are other ways that we can do that yeah. to kind of enhance with donor education, but I'm not sure we'll ever get to an opt out in the United States is what I'm hearing from surveys, et cetera. Yeah. It's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, it is a bummer. A bummer. I want it. Um, <laughs> the, the training path to be you four years of medical school, five, six years, gen surge. What's, what's after that? Then you do two years of a clinical transplant fellowship. Uh, and then you get a certificate of completion from the American society of transplant surgery. Uh, the ASTS, or the society that I just described, they are in the process of doing more of that, like more of a certification, kind of a board certification. Um, right now, transplant surgeons do not have board certification like you do with the American Board of Medicine or the American Board of Surgery. It's not recognized as a boarded subspecialty. However, the ASTS has kind of taken it on themselves to generate a credentialing and certification pathway. Mm -hmm. So if anyone were in medical school and residency now, they would eventually go through this certification pathway, um, which entails taking the exam and then practicing for a year. And they do this in other specialties like colorectal surgery and orthopedics. Then you take like a list of your cases in the first year and you have an oral exam based on the cases. Um, so that's basically how it's going to be moving forward. Yeah. I, I have friends that have sat through their oral oral boards. Yeah. And they're dreading it. They're like, I'm going to be picked <laughs> apart for every single decision I made. Um, but hopefully they, yeah. they can stand by it. So that's good. Um, for the osteopathic student uh, or surgical resident listening to this, what do they need to do to overcome any sort of negative bias out there to, to become a transplant surgeon? So I would say just, um, just work hard. I would say if, to get the best, everyone can apply for a transplant surgery fellowship after you graduate your general surgical residency, regardless if you went to med school or osteopathic school. What I would do is try to identify some one or two years of research during your residency. Um, I think that makes one a competitive, more competitive applicant because I'm also the program director at our fellowship, and we do look for people who kind of had done dedicated research time. And the reason we do that is because I think there's a broader base of training and education that someone who does five years of clinical surgery and two years of research has. 
I went in the lab. I did two years in the lab. I became a better thinker on the floor. I analyzed patients' conditions in a in a more critical way that I think I, I don't think I would have had that as much as I not done two years in the lab. So I do think it allows you to become a more critical thinker. Um, and plus, we like to have fellows that want to come and do some clinical research during their fellowship. Mm. We, you know, so what I would recommend is get involved in a lab, get involved in some research projects, write a couple papers, learn how to present at national meetings, learn an academic surgery pathway. You could always go into private practice surgery if you go into academic surgery and then go to private practice. But if you're focused on private practice, I think it's tough to get into academics because to get at academics, you have to do the academic stuff, right? Which is research, presentations. But if you learn that as a skill set during your residency with good mentorship, I think you set you up for a much better pathway to become a transplant surgical fellow yeah. and also a transplant surgeon. There are some specialties that are almost exclusively academic. Is, is transplant surgery, abdominal transplant surgery, one that has some community slash private practice availability if someone wants to go that route? It definitely does. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but I suspect that, I mean, there's no question 85% or 90% of the programs, across, the centers across the country, maybe that's a little bit high, maybe it's 80, 20, 85, 15 are academic versus more private practice. Um, if you want to be a kidney transplant surgeon in a private practice setting, I think you're more likely to find a spot than if you want to do liver transplantation. A lot of the liver transplant programs, I think, would be more academic. Yeah. But there are there are private practice liver transplant programs in the country for sure. Yeah. It just keeps your doors open, I think, if you have the opportunity to do both. So you've you've mentioned a couple times. I haven't specifically asked. Abdominal transplant <clears throat> surgery seems to be at least right now kidney and liver. Is there any hope for other <laughs> other body parts in the future? Yeah, the only reason I talk about kidney liver is because that's what I do. But yeah. pancreas transplantation is a well recognized and standard of care for patients with type one diabetes and kidney failure. We do simultaneous pancreas and kidney transplants. Uh, we do pancreas transplants for patients who have gotten a kidney transplant, say, from a living donor but still has diabetes. And then we can go ahead and do a pancreas after kidney transplant so we can cure them of their diabetes. And then the third patient population who gets a pancreas transplant is someone with unrelenting diabetes or um, an inability, like diabetic um, hypoglycemic unawareness. They don't know when their sugar is dropping. So there's a select number of patients that would benefit from a pancreas transplant alone. Um, so we definitely do pancreas transplants, liver, kidney, and small bowel transplant is also done at a small number of centers across the country. People with um, you know short bowel syndrome, people who have had traumatic car accidents that have had to have their bowel removed from traumatic injury to their superior mesenteric artery. Wow. Uh, you know Those patients could potentially, if they get through that onslaught of trauma, they can certainly um, candidates for a small bowel transplant. No appendix transplants in the near future. None. No. <laughs> we don't try to retransplant the appendix. Still haven't figured out what that thing's good for. Um, <laughs> what do you know now that you wish you knew before going into abdominal transplant surgery? Well, the one thing I didn't know, which I'm not necessarily, I wouldn't say that I wish I had known. I'm kind of glad I didn't know because I, I didn't realize that you'd the jobs are not as prevalent 
after you go through a transplant surgery fellowship. So for instance, colorectal surgery, vascular surgery, there's much more vascular disease and colon and rectal disease where you could pretty much go anywhere in the country um, and you could likely find a position. But transplant surgery is limited by, it's not really the patients, but really by the donor organs. So there's a limitation in terms of the number of jobs that are out there. Hmm. So again, I didn't, I just figured I was going to go to Wisconsin and come back to Massachusetts and work in Massachusetts, either Mass General or, you know, one of the VI Deaconess, one of the programs back in Boston. And I found out that those jobs aren't always available. So I think recognize that you might have to just go another part of the country and, and set up shop at another place where you can practice as a transplant surgeon. So that would be one thing. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't appreciate the satisfaction that I was going to get. I mean, I knew I enjoyed the technical aspects of it, but I didn't, I appreciate it so much now, like the benefit and the impact that I have on patients' lives with our team. And I knew I liked it for the technical aspects. I knew patients did well, but it's not until you're embedded in the specialty and you see patients like on death's door with liver failure, and then you can transplant them. And then in like a week, they're just like a different person. I mean, and then they walk out of here. Um, the, I just thought patients with kidney failure, they go on dialysis, Yeah. but they're miserable on dialysis. And when you get them off dialysis, they're so happy that they're no longer on dialysis that uh, they don't have to go there three days a week. So I, I, I think that's one thing I didn't recognize, and I'm, it wouldn't have changed my mind, but I'm so glad that I recognize. I mean, you just see it when you practice it. Yeah. The from a from a job perspective, mm-hmm. someone coming out of their transplant fellowship should they expect to do maybe a lot more general surgery to begin with as they're building kind of a a practice in transplant surgery, or maybe they go to a newer transplant program and they're building uh, kind of their program. Should they expect some more general surgery call and and work? uh, Or is that not something out, out of fellowship? I think it depends on where you go. So if you go to a transplant center that does a small volume of kidney transplants per year, no liver, no pancreas, you'll probably end up doing more general surgical calls. So if they, there's two or three surgeons, they do 60 to 70 kidney transplants a year and nothing else, you're probably going to end up doing more general surgery call. If you go to a transplant program that does 100 liver transplants a year, 300 kidney transplants a year, and you're going to be doing liver and kidney transplants, you're probably going to be busy enough just doing transplants. And you probably, you won't be doing a lot of general surgery, but you'll be doing some general surgery on your transplant patients. You might do some hernia surgery. If they come in with certain, a small bowel obstruction or something like that, you can, you'll end up operating on those patients. But for the most part, it depends how busy the the center is where you get your job. So low volume, probably do more general surgical stuff. Higher volume, probably less. Okay. And we would really expect coming out of a program, you really don't want to be starting your own program coming out of your fellowship. Yeah. So I think that's an expectation that trainees should not be looking towards. You want to get into the field and then you five to eight years, 10 years in, if someone wants to recruit you to start a program, I think you'll be ready at that point. Okay. What do you like the most about your specialty? I think the multidisciplinary aspect of it. And what does that mean? It means that as a surgeon, I was in general surgical residency. You see patients, 
with an illness or the general surgical illness of small bowel issue, you kind of bring the patient in, you operate on them, you take care of them, they go home. In transplant, you have to work with nephrologists and hepatologists and dietitians and social workers and coordinators. And you have to determine whether or not someone's a suitable candidate for transplant before you even decide to do an operation on them. And I love having that multidisciplinary approach because you work with great people in the medical subspecialties. So you really are a full, t- I, I'm not sure there's a greater teamwork effort than in transplant compared to other general, other surgical specialties because you can't do it without the assistance of other people. So again, we take them to surgery, but then after that, they're so complex, bringing in other team members is very valuable. So I've met a lot of great people in these other subspecialties that I really enjoy working with. And I think it makes it, um, it makes it more comprehensive, I think, treating both the medical and the surgical aspects of transplant. What do you like the least? Um, I guess as you get older, the uncertainty of when you're going to be doing transplant. So when you're hungry and you're coming out of fellowship and you just want to do a lot of surgery, it doesn't, you know, the uncertainty doesn't affect you as much. So I think maybe the uncertainty a little bit more, like you're always, um, not sure when you'll be doing surgery. I think other subspecialties, you, you set your cases on Mondays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, and that's when you know you're doing surgery. But in transplant, you do have to commit to the uncertainty. And when you're on call, it's tough to make plans with your family, right? Because you never know when you're going to. So I think it's something that a trainee should really think about. Um, there is an uncertainty to a career in transplant surgery that you don't see in other surgical subspecialties. Um, so I think that can be a little bit disruptive to, and you have to have really understanding partner, family, um, just that understands that it's, you know, transplant is transplant and at the give any given moment, you might not be around for the big event. So yeah, as long as that, yeah, I think that's probably the one area that's a little bit, um, I mean, you get used to it, right. But if there's anything I could change, I wish all my cases were on Monday morning, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Well, well, let, let's talk about that. So uh, I'm a huge fan of technology. I think technology can take us uh, leaps and bounds beyond where we're at today so that I, I hope a, a civilization in the future looks back at what we did with organs and goes, well, that's so barbaric. What are they doing? They're like maiming people to help other people. Um, do, do you think we'll get to a place either through uh, improved artificial technology um, or with genetically modified pigs uh, or, or other animals to where we could have a more abundant supply of organs so that you have everything you need for your Monday morning surgeries? I do think we're getting a lot closer. So xenotransplantation using pig kidneys, and I know there have been some stories um, in the press, like the great innovation that's going that happened at University of Maryland. Um, and also um, in New York. And I think it's great. I mean, we are moving more towards being able to use pig kidneys in clinical transplantation. There are a bunch of barriers we need to get over, and they're all immunological barriers, but I think we can get there. I think a little bit sooner on the horizon is probably how we preserve organs once we remove them. So the whole machine perfusion of organs has really um, taken a big step over the last five years, and I do think this is probably the wave of the future. What does it mean? It means that if you take out a liver and you can perfuse it for 12 hours, you can be flexible in terms of when you're scheduling the surgery um, and you wouldn't have to do them all in the middle of the night. So that's, 
and you could actually, and we're we're in the midst of clinical trials here, and then other centers across the country trying to assess the viability of a liver. You take a liver out, we used to just preserve it with cold preservation solution, which is the standard of care, and we do that now with the University of Wisconsin solution, by the way, um, by Dr. Belzer. Um, you don't you don't drench it in Gatorade. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's oh, right. We don't bummer. drench it in Gatorade. All right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but the perfusion, the uh, the ex vivo, so out of the body perfusion of organs um, with lung transplantation, heart transplantation, liver and kidney, I think is really the wave of the future over the next five to 10 years um, where we can really resuscitate these organs. We can treat them with proteins or other therapies to try to make them work better. And then hopefully we will, will not be discarding as many organs. So we might go and recover an organ that we realize that it's we don't think it's suitable for transplant, but we can resuscitate them and make them better so we can do more transplant. So I think that does have a possibility of making our surgery a little bit more elective during the day. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be an abdominal transplant surgeon? I definitely would. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and I still love what I do. Um, you know, and it's it, the other benefit is being able to train our trainees and kind of learning what we've learned. So being able to pass that on um, to the our trainees has been really rewarding. But I, I think the impact that we have on people's lives to be able to be a facilitator, I just consider myself a facilitator of, uh, you know, a transplant surgeon, but being able to give the opportunity for that deceased donor, that deceased donor family to do what they want us to do and try to give those organs to people that have a new lease on life. That is so unique to transplant and, and it's, it's amazing every time I experience it. So I would definitely do it again. Any last words of wisdom for the student or resident listening to this, thinking about transplant surgery in their future? Yeah, I would say just get involved early, like during your, even in medical school, um, if there's time to do electives, I would definitely try to do an elective at a transplant center, or you can go into someone's lab who's doing some transplant research. Um, certainly as a surgical resident, um, you can also do that as well, get involved in someone's research, do a couple of years in the laboratory if possible. So I think getting involved and finding the right mentor, the ASTS, um, has a program that tries to get medical students involved in transplant um, and then try to get them to national meetings so they can see what happens at a transplant meeting. So I think finding the right mentor um, at your institution would be key. And just sit down and talk to him or her. Ask them about what they think about transplant surgery. And I think if you find the right role model, um, I'm sure you'll be addicted to it like we are. And uh, it could attract you right into the, the subspecialty. So. That's probably what I would say. All right. So there you have it. Again, Dr. David Foley, abdominal transplant surgeon, a fellowship director at the University of Wisconsin. If you are interested in learning more about abdominal transplant surgery, check out the American Society of Transplant Surgeons. That's ASTS.org. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.